Some of you are, are guests here or are new with us. Uh, when I'm preaching on the, my Sunday, I've been going through the book of Joshua, and we're in, in chapter 11, and this message, as I've been preparing it, is deep. It's, it's not light. It's not fluffy. Um, and I actually reached out to several pastor friends of mine just saying, would you pray for this, this message? Because I, I think um, God really has a message he wants us to hear um, that we need to wrestle with. So let me, uh, the, the words equity and equality and justice and fairness, they're bandied around these days a lot in our culture, aren't they? But I don't know that we really understand those words and what God would have to say about those words. Those words, equity, equality, justice, fairness, those are weighty words. They're not light words. They, they cause us to be... If we think about them, they're really sobering. And as we look at this chapter, Joshua 11 today, I think we're going to see the justice of God. And we desperately need the Spirit's work, so let me ask him to help us this morning. God, we do ask that you would send your Spirit, that your Spirit would guide my words, that you would guide my mouth, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I pray that these words would not be words of uh, human wisdom, but would come in power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, last chapter, chapter 10, we read of the conquest of all the northern tribes. And then... Here in chapter 11, at the beginning, we're going to see the conquest of the southern tribes. And, and, and when I say tribes, Israel has come out of Egypt by God's mighty hand, bringing them to this promised land, and it's full of different tribes that do not worship the one true God. And God has given them a command, as we're going to see, to eliminate them. And so, last chapter, all the northern tribes. This chapter, we're going to read the beginning, the southern tribes. And then we get to verse 18, and you're going to see a summary of the first 11, 10 chapters of the book. Not in the way you'd think, but just a summary of what happened. So, I'm going to read through that chapter. And I didn't put it on the overhead, because it's a little long. So, just listen in and let these words sink into when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he went to Jobab, king of Medan, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Axrath, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Naphoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east, and the west, the, Ananite, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hizzites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So he just listed all the tribes, okay? And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies, you can kind of get a picture of that in your head, can't you? And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time... I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses 
and burned their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misrephath Maim, as far as eastward, as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. If you're not sure what hamstrung is, for those who like animals, you don't want to know. Just look at later. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none that left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. You remember that from chapter 9. The family, the people that came, dressed up, tried to trick, they followed the mercy of Joshua. Everybody but them. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came out at that time, came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So normally, as I've done through Joshua, I cover like the whole chapter in one sermon. Um, chapter 10, I broke it up into three. Today, I'm going to focus just on one verse. A little bit different approach. And I want this text, this one verse, to weigh on us this morning. And I want those of us who quickly fall to Sunday school answers to put those aside for a second 
and let it just sink in what this says. We need to be honest with this text. So verse, the end of verse 19, right into 20, they took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. God not only intended to be unmerciful to these people and to destroy them, but he hardened their hearts so that they would rise up against Israel and so that he could destroy them. There's probably three groups of people in this room this morning that hear this text in one way. Some of you read this text and say, this hardening, unmerciful God can't really be the God I know. That has to mean something else. And then there are some of those of us in this room that read this and automatically jump to a Sunday school answer, maybe a right answer. Don't hear me saying it's not a right answer, but they jump to it so fast They don't let the weight of this question of what in the world is going on here sink into their hearts. And then there's those of us who have never read a passage like this and go, what in the world? (laughs) Right? So there's some people like, I don't want any part of that God. There's some people who read that and say, well, yeah, yeah, I know this and this and this and this, and that's how I am okay with that. And that's okay. But I, I want you to slow down. And then there's some of us that go, I have no idea what to do with that. And by the grace of God, that's what we're going to try and wrestle through today. And the Apostle Paul himself did not jump so fast to an answer to this. In fact, he said he knew that the logical answer that you should have as a human when you read this is, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there injustice with God? Is what Paul asks in Romans when you think about this. You probably go, wait, I think God's not just. I mean, if you're human, this verse should raise questions in your mind, like how can this be fair? How can God plan for someone to commit evil and then judge them for it? You get that? That's what that's saying there. And I want to ask you, have you ever really engaged someone with verses like this, a skeptic, and, and wrestled with it in a, a, a gentle, loving way. Let me just read to you some quotes from a skeptic about this verse. Okay, because this is what people would say who have a real problem with the Bible. They said, God here wants to be known as an omnipotent deity who will mercilessly torture an entire nation of people in order to make a name for himself. How is this something that someday I can teach my kids? Another person says, how could a God of love ever override these people's free will so that they would attack Israel so that he can have an excuse to destroy them all? That's what what they would say. And I think if you're human... (laughs) If you're trying to uh, slow down and, and not just come up with the pat answers, 
those things should make sense to you. Like, wait a second. Don't try to avoid this question. In fact, this verse is one of the main reasons I wanted to preach through Joshua because I was on a trip to the Middle East with a bunch of people from other denominations that don't even believe that Moses was real. They don't believe... uh, They they had a Thomas Jefferson approach to the Bible. They cut out what they didn't want to hear and believe. And they asked me about this. They said, how can you believe that that is the kind of God that we worship? And I, I had to come to the point of saying, I don't think we worship the same God then. Because that's the God of the Bible. So this morning, I want us to, to, to look at five questions. Um, and if, I, th- I think if we think about this long enough, this is a humbling, humbling question about why is this, what is this saying? And the way I want to break it down is just answer five questions. What does the text say? Is God fair? Why such a ferocious attack now? And what does it mean to harden their hearts? And fifth, why should I care? So, that verse 19, what does the text say? Let's look at that again. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. I mean, here we see Israel took them all, all the Canaanite peoples in battle. And then it gives us the reason for something. That word for, that's like saying because. So they took them all in battle because it, that's the previous phrase, taking them all in battle. Because taking them all in battle is what? The Lord's doing. Yahweh, it's actually capital L-O-R-D in your text. Yahweh's doing. All the destruction of the Canaanites people that we've seen in the first 10 chapters and, the first, and all through this chapter is not Israel's own doing. It's the Lord's doing. That's what it says. Right there, in your face, this is, not God, this is not Israel's mission, this is God's mission. And we see four purpose words in this text, and they all fall from each one, like almost like a waterfall. You see that? Each one has a purpose word. They took them all in battle. For, it was the Lord's doing. Why? to harden their hearts. Why? In order that, that they should come against Israel in battle. Why should they come against Israel in battle? In order that, another purpose word, they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed. It was the purpose of the Lord to harden hearts so that they'd meet Israel in battle, so that Joshua would utterly destroy them so that they might receive no mercy. And then you get this poetic statement, but be destroyed, as if we didn't know that. It's, it's, it's just a restatement that it's complete destruction. And that final phrase, just as the Lord commanded Moses, it's underscoring that this is not a recent thought in God. This is the fulfillment of what Moses told Joshua before he died. And it's what Moses said, that this is what God told me. 
I don't know why, but God told me, Joshua, when you come into the land, you're to destroy all the inhabitants there. And Moses told that to Joshua, and here we see that God's word clearly demonstrates that his purposes will be fulfilled. Nothing stops God's plan. Nothing. That's simply what the text says. But I think when it, when it comes to it, we understand what total destruction means. We, get, we can get our heads wrapped around, okay, that's awful. That's like a rated R movie, complete destruction, very violent. But I think we have a harder time understanding what does that word to harden, that phrase, to harden their hearts mean. Because I think if we can wrestle with that, we're going to get our heads wrapped around this a little bit better. But before we even dig into that, I want us to ask this next question. Is God fair? Is God fair? You know that God would pass over one person and set his mercy upon another seems to us to be totally unfair. Did he not pass over Canaan and set his mercy on Israel? He did. And as Sinclair Ferguson says, what we want from God in our hearts is justice. We want justice from God. But I think if by justice we mean that we want God to treat us equally, then I think we have probably three different opinions, one of three opinions, maybe tweaked a little bit, about God's justice. And that first opinion you might have about God's justice is that there's nothing wrong with any of us and that justice is not what we deserve, but about giving us not about mercy, but about giving us all what we deserve. That would be justice, and, and that's one opinion. But I think it's rare that you ever find somebody that really holds to the view that Hitler should be in heaven, right? That's really, you have to come to that position. If you think that, you say, well, Pol Pot and Hitler and Genghis Khan should be in heaven then, and this is true. But a third, second opinion you may have about justice is we believe that God, that some of us deserve his mercy more than others because our sins are petty, but our good deeds merit his mercy. That could be one, another view of God's justice. And a third view would be that every one of us does not deserve his mercy because of our rebellion, but we think he should show mercy to all. And I, in those first two opinions... I think the issue is that we don't understand the holiness of God and the magnitude of our sin. See, God is completely other. He is righteousness. Not an adjective like we don't describe him as righteous. He is righteousness. He defines what righteousness is. His very existence is perfection. He defines what goodness and justice and wrath and power are in himself. And we cannot even look upon him. When Moses asked to see his glory, God denied his direct request, saying in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. But in all three of these opinions on God's justice... It's as if to speak as if we have some claim on God, like we can tell him what to do. But as the Apostle Paul says, but who are you, O man? 
Who are you, O man, to speak to your creator and make a demand of him? I think a more biblically faithful and and humanly honest view on God's justice would be this last one tweaked a little bit, that every one of us does not deserve his his mercy because of our rebellion, but we wish he would show mercy to all. I mean, that's the cry of our heart. We should, frankly, we should all know we all are rebels. And we wish God would show mercy to all. We wish that God would show justice, but truthfully, we should not really want God to be just, to be fair, to treat us equally as we deserve. You do not want God to treat you equally, treat us all equally as we deserve. If he did, that would be the end of us all, every one of us. But the truth is God is fair, God is just. The sovereign, holy, wrathful God of the universe is just in all that he does. And he will execute justice fairly, evenly, meeting out what is deserved by all. He does. He will. We don't want it right now. We should not want it. But he will. So the question is, is God fair? Yes, God is fair. God will give out the sentences that are deserved. But if we take a step back and think about our passage in Joshua, we see that God's command to the Israelites to to utterly destroy the people of Canaan with such fury and totality seems out of balance. It feels to us out of balance because he only told them to go into Canaan and wipe those people out. He didn't send them on a mission then to purge the rest of the earth of all the other nations that were rebelling. He told them right here, and it seems like, why just them? And that leads us to the next question of, why such a ferocious attack now and on these people in particular? And, and we ask this question, we ask this question because it seems to, to us sometimes like God is, is random here. As if on the flip of a dime, he decided to wipe out the Canaanites and use Israel to do it. But that's simply not the case. Um, and when you're in a conversation with someone about, this, about Joshua, and they're, they're saying, look at this kind of God, ask them, have you considered the full history of the Canaanites and whether they've considered the long-suffering of God? And to see that history, we've got to look a little bit further back in the Old Testament. It says in Genesis 15, 7, there God promises to Abraham, he promises him the land of Canaan. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you this land called Canaan. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land, Canaan, to possess. And then in verse 13, God foretells, he prophesies, he tells Abraham about Egypt. That Israel's going to be there. You're not going to stay in Canaan. I'm going to take you down to Egypt, and you're going to be enslaved there. He says, the Lord says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And then God tells Abraham, but I'm going to bring judgment on Egypt, on that nation that they serve, 
and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And then God tells Abraham, but you're not going to get to see it. You're going to die. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But now notice verse 16. He says to Abraham, and they, the people, when I'm releasing from Egypt, shall come back here to Canaan in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's saying, apparently at that point, the Amorites, and Amorites here is synonymous with Canaanites, everybody that lives in that land. For four, over 400 years, their iniquity was growing and growing, their sins, their culture was growing and worsening and worsening. And God doesn't tell us here in Genesis 15 how, it, how bad it is. But you go over to Leviticus 18 and you get an idea here. He says, you shall not do as they, he's, and he's talking about when you come into Canaan, you shall not do as they did in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, the land to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And how many have ever read the book of Leviticus? Like, there's a few of you. How many are you like, what in the world is this book about? <laughs> right? There's like how to cook and how to go to the bathroom. And there's all kinds of interesting things in that book. And you're like, what do I do with this? This is a good learning right here on how to read your Bible. Because right here in verses two, 3, it tells you, God gives you an idea of why he's telling his people these strange rules to, the, to them. Because it's contrasting. He's like, these things I'm about to tell you to do are the opposite of what the people in Canaan are doing. So from verse 6 through 23, he lists all kinds of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That follows right after this. So in other words, all these things I'm telling you not to do is what they do. And then you get to verse 23 and he says, don't make yourselves unclean by any of these things. All those things in between those, those verses. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So you probably ask, okay, what's in between those verses, three and this verse, that's so bad? It's bad. It's bad. It's really bad. Um incest, bestiality, homosexuality, child sacrifice. The parents were sacrificing their children in this land for more than 400 years, and it just kept growing and growing the evil in that land. So was this just an impulsive, violent God? No, clearly not. Because for more than 400 years, God had been patiently waiting to accomplish his plans. God had been delaying judgment on Canaan. He let them heap it up, heap it up, heap it up. And during that whole time, he was actually showing them mercy. For more than 400 years, he was not giving them what they deserved. And then after all, they had, he'd actually given them opportunity to repent. If you've been tracking with me through the book of Joshua, 
Second chapter, Rahab in Jericho says, we have heard of what Yahweh has done. And what does Rahab do? She turns to God. And over and over in the book of Joshua, you have this little phrase, when they heard of it, when they heard of what Yahweh had done. Those Canaanites knew that the God Yahweh was the one to one true God and to whom they had to do. And only Rahab and the Gibeonites in chapter 9, the Gibeonites came and pled for mercy. All the rest of those nations knew about the one true God. And what did they do? They gave God the bird. They literally, they assembled the army. Did you catch that? At the beginning of chapter 11, an army as vast as the sea, the sands on the sea, huge army. So they know that they're fighting against Yahweh. They know it. That was that. Back then, you fought against the tribal deities. So these, these armies gathered together against Yahweh. They didn't care that it was Israel. It was Yahweh they were against. So God had put up with hundreds of years of immorality and said, I'm waiting. You can turn to me. You can turn to me. God knows they won't. He gives opportunity for Rahab to repent. He gives opportunity for all of them to repent. And Gibeon repents, and that's it. So clearly, this does not mean this passage we come to, when it reads a hard verse like this, like God showed no mercy and utter destruction, this does not mean that God came to a holy and happy people. (laughs) The Canaanites were evil, just evil rampant through that country. It's not like he came to a really nice group of people and threw down hail from heaven and destroyed them just because he's impulsive. That's what I was always told by these liberals. They said, look at what an impulsive God he is. He just destroys out of... I said, you don't know your Bible. For hundreds of years, God has been giving them an opportunity to repent. That's, that's And they're like, oh. Um, but we still need to answer the question. I haven't gotten to the question of what in the world does this hardening mean? So let's tackle that. What does this hardening mean? And the first thing we can see is that the hardening did not cause the judgment. As we've already seen, this judgment of the people of Canaan is not merely a result of their actions after their hearts were hardened. What I'm saying is God did not harden their hearts and then they did these bad things. They had been doing evil for hundreds of years And God now hardens his heart and brings the judgment. They deserved judgment before the hardening. Whatever hardening means, they deserved judgment before they got it. Second, the hardening was an action by God. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see several times that it says a person hardens their heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart. So-and-so hardened their heart. But here, the text does not say that. It says that God hardened their heart. God hardened their heart. We know this is God's doing. But third, the hardening itself is a judgment from God. Even if Israel did not destroy them as judgment, the hardening itself is a judgment by God. 
The fact that the people have been living for hundreds of years committing abomination after abomination, and that word abomination is like, that's the strongest word in the Hebrew for hate. God, that it, you like have different levels of hate. I hate this thing, I hate this thing. Abomination is the hating of hates. <laughs> they have been committing abomination after abomination, and that helps us see that whatever this hardening is, is a judgment by God. And that hardening would lead to their eventual demise and battle. I, I call this a judicial hardening. It's an act of God the judge executing the sentence upon a people whose hearts were already set on rebellion. So he did this to hearts that had already been set on rebellion. Fourth, this hardening is itself consistent with how God judges. This is consistent with how God judges. The angel of the Lord told the apostle John in Revelation 22, 11, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. He's saying, I'm going to let them continue to heap up judgment for themselves, and then I will bring judgment. If you read Revelation, that's what it's about, right? God wins, he brings judgment. But in Romans 1, we see, therefore, God gave them over. I think this gives us a picture of what hardening is. God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You read that, and if you read the rest of Romans 1, you'll see, boy, that sounds a lot like those Canaanite people. That God then handed them over. So hardening of the heart is related to this pattern of judgment we see that throughout Scripture. In fact, Jesus even speaks of this judicial hardening as a judgment on Israel later. God delivers people over to their own devices. And this leads us to another principle before, that we need to talk about before I can answer what is this hardening in Joshua 11. Common grace restrains sin. Okay? I've said this before. Matt has said this. In fact, we've said it a lot lately for some reason in some of our lessons and sermons. For, it's just coming up a lot. Common grace, we think of grace as that what saves us. That is... There is grace that saves us, but there's this element where God is showing grace to everybody right now. He's showing them grace by not giving them what they deserve and further giving them blessings, right? Think about the different blessings you receive all the time. Everybody receives all the time. That rain this weekend, those farmers needed it. Really bad. Food, money, talents, health, beauty, more. It's grace that God gives to every single living person. And all of those things that are given to you, you're held accountable for when you don't say thank you, God. Because if all of these are gifts from God, the right response is what? Thank you, God. So if, if, if you receive a gift and you say, and walk away, 
you're an unthankful person. And the giver of all good gifts, who brings the rain on the just and the unjust, is giving you a gift every day. Your heart's beating. That's called common grace. We don't deserve it. And we're held accountable to it. So, and here's the thing. Common grace is also restraining evil. That's one of the good gifts that God gives. Because you see, much, even though it's surprising, things are yet not as bad as they could be. They're not. Things could be a lot worse right now. And for God's per- perfect purposes, for some reason, he is allowing things to continue, but restraining evil where it needs to be. And you may be like, well, why didn't he restrain it here? I don't know. But I know that he is, because things could be a lot worse than they are. And that is showing grace to mankind by restraining sin from having its full effect. But when you get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll see that God teaches that there's a day coming when he will pull that back. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We feel that, right? Lawlessness. We feel that in Danville a lot. <laughs> Only he... And I think that's referring to the Holy Spirit of God, who now restrains, will do so until he's taken out of the way. Common grace is the Spirit of God keeping things in such a way that God's able to accomplish his purposes through history, but yet maintain your free will without having to interfere into your will. But he can make sure this doesn't happen, and this doesn't happen, and this doesn't happen but yet still allowing evil to happen, he's holding it back from being as bad as it could be. And at some point, his spirit will pull back and let it all go. And that's going to be the ultimate judgment time. Read Revelation. You'll see what it's about. So let me ask, answer our question here. The hardening of their hearts, I believe, is a removal of common grace. That the hardening of the hearts in Joshua 11 is God pulling back and saying, you want it? Have it. R.C. Sproul said it this way, the only thing that had kept that heart from becoming harder than it was was the tender grace of God. Now, all illustrations break down. I don't tend to do a lot of illustrations in my messages because <laughs> they all break down. <laughs> But this one, I think, may help us to help us understand what's happening here in Joshua 11 to say that God hardened their hearts and this pulling back of common grace is what happened here. So this is a forge where they're melting metal in a crucible right in the center of the fire. Inside there's some kind of precious metal. And out here is a very hot fire melting that precious metal. Your heart... The Canaanite's heart is the metal inside there. And as long as the fire, which is common grace, keeps burning, that fire, that metal still stays moldable. In fact, some impurities even come out of it. But as soon as you take that fire away, you pour that out, and what happens to that precious metal? Hardens becomes unmoldable. 
All God has to do is remove the restraints of common grace, the fire of his common grace, and let people have their own way. God's protection is removed. How dreadful that will be. This leads me to the last question then. I think that should help you see what God did there in this verse. They took them all in battle for it was the Lord's doing to pull back. Hundreds of years of evil over and over. He's giving them opportunity to repent. He's like, now is the time. He steps back, and now their hearts are hardened against Yahweh. They come against Israel in battle, and he's doing this, allowing this to happen, orchestrating it all so that they could be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy, but be utterly destroyed. So this fifth question is, why should I care, Paul? Why should I care about this? And I think there's three reasons why you should care about this truth. The first is that this world we live in is on that same path of destruction that the Canaanites were. That list of sins in Leviticus 18 happened today, often out in the open, and are praised. We are in a month where we praise that sin. And we wonder... Open immorality every day, not only tolerated, but praised. And every single day, thousands of children are sacrificed, just like described in Leviticus 18, sacrificed to the gods of pleasure and ease. And don't think for a minute that just because Friday was a historic day in this country, that somehow America's turning back to God. I'm afraid you're wrong if you think that. Because we are on the same path of utter destruction. How long is God going to allow this world to continue down this path? How long is it going to be before he removes his common grace? It's only a matter of time. I think it's easy for us to hear this message. And some of us, yeah, yeah. Repent, repent. It's easy for us to sit back and piously judge and declare like a certain Pharisee did. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like them. I think that's the second reason why we should care about this text. Every one of us, left to ourselves, deserve nothing because we have rebelled against the Creator King. All of us have rebelled against that creator king. In other words, we're all Canaanites. We cannot, like that Pharisee in Luke 18, say, thank God I'm not like them. This text points us to Jesus. I think this verse that we're looking at is stark and scary as it is. I don't think it's stark and scary because we think it's a different picture of God than we want. I think it's stark and scary because we know that's the God who made us. The God to whom we have to give an answer. And without a Savior, without a Savior, we will experience equal judgment that is fair. We look at this and part of us balks 
but the other part realizes this is what rebellion against the king deserves. And as that song puts it, everybody wants to rule the world. Everybody wants to put on a crown that doesn't fit. In our hearts, we know I've committed treason against the one who made me. Third reason why you should care, this is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. You see, God must be just. He came, Jesus came to take on the justice of God for everyone who would repent and believe in him. He came to absorb the wrath that we see in this scary chapter in the Bible. And much more than that, because the eternal wrath of God could only be borne by an eternal God-man. Only an eternal God-man could bear that weight. And in our hearts, we beg for mercy. And the only way that's going to work is if you know where mercy is found. Mercy and justice meet at the cross of Christ. This justice that we see in chapter 11 of Joshua is the justice that we deserve and more, but mercy is found at the cross. Just like Rahab, just like Gibeon, we can come and plead to Jesus. And the question, as one commentator put it, is, God intends you to ask, am I one on whom the Lord has had mercy on, or am I being hardened for the day of judgment? Which is it with you, he says. He says, do you find your heart trusting in and loving the Lord Jesus, or do you continue to cling to your sin and find your heart growing colder and harder to God as each gospel opportunity to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation passes by unheeded. End quote. My friends, mercy is available today. Today is the day that you need to turn your eyes to Jesus if you've not. Today is the day to turn your eyes upon Jesus, if last week you were and the rest of this week you weren't, today is the day to turn your eyes upon Jesus. There is mercy and forgiveness at the cross. And I said five questions, but I lied. Please forgive me. There's a sixth question. And that question I think you would ask if you have turned to Christ, if you have found mercy at the cross, is why me, Lord? Why should it be us? I said early on that facing this fact is going to be a humbling question. I think it's humbling because if you realize that if you've tasted of the mercy of God and know that he's given his son for you, then you know that the real question you have asked yourself is not, how can that be a fair God? But why me, Lord? I didn't deserve your mercy. I didn't deserve your grace. I didn't deserve to be called your child. I stood as condemned as the Canaanites and the Israelites. I deserve to be utterly destroyed. Why me, Lord? Why me? And there's an old hymn. I want to read the lyrics to you. How sweet and awesome 
is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full, that all the chosen race may, with one voice in heart and soul, sing your redeeming grace. May we all cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Before I ask Jeff to come and the musicians to come, well, go ahead and come. I want us to just take just a moment to reflect as they're getting ready Maybe play quietly um, to reflect on this. Lord, why was I a guest? Maybe you're here today and you haven't turned to him. You've been resisting. Maybe you're like, I don't want any part of that God. God, that God is the God who made you, whether you think it or not, whether you believe it or not. He made you and you owe your allegiance to him. And every single one of us have rebelled, committed treason against him, and yet he stands with wide open arms on a cross offering the mercy, mercy and grace. So let's take a second to reflect and then Jeff, go ahead and play when you're, play when you're ready.